0: We really bought in and I really bought in. Like, I really believed that we could be good. I really, truly believed that. And I got them to believe it. In fact, when we hosted our first Indy 10 championship, we had this snow squall come across the field. It was freezing. It was like blown sideways. And I remember bringing the women into the sports complex. And I said, everybody be quiet. I said, just listen to all the people that are complaining about the weather. And we're all listening. And I said, I'm going to mar- you're going to march out that door and you're going to beat every one of those women that has been complaining about the weather because this is our campus. And we just like pounded our chests and walked out there and we won. But I just remember loving it and believing in it and just wanted people to believe in me. And so to see it grow like that, it's like raising a child. <laughs> it was just so gratifying.
1: That's Karen Bowen and this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week's episode is a really special one. I got to have a long conversation with someone who's had a profound impact on my life and has played a major role in shaping the person I am today, my college cross-country and track coach, Karen Bowen. A lot of how I think about training, coaching, and life in general is due to her influence. Coach has been at Stonehill College in Northeastern Massachusetts since 1997, when at the age of 40, she took a part-time role to coach a women's team that was on the brink of being cut as a varsity sport. 23 years later, under her guidance, the Stonehill women's cross-country team has been to 19 straight NCAA Division II championships. She took over the men's cross-country program in 2002 when I was a junior. We weren't very good, but a year later, we qualified for the national championship for the first time in school history, finishing 12th, and the squad has made it back there every year since. Coach was also the director of both the men's and women's track and field programs until this past year, stepping down from her role as head coach, but remaining on staff to continue working with the distance runners. In her time at Stonehill, coaches developed over 70 All-Americans, her teams have won 38 national titles, and she's been named Conference and Regional Coach of the Year more times than I can possibly count. Last December, she was one of six coaches inducted into the U.S. Track and Field and Cross-Country Coaches Association Hall of Fame, a well-deserved honor that recognizes not only her achievements as a coach, but the leadership, passion, and inspiration that she's brought to so many others. There is so much to this conversation and I am super excited to share it with you. Coach talks about growing up in the projects of South Boston with a single mom and two brothers, being told that she had perfectionist syndrome as a kid and how that shaped her approach to life, getting the opportunity to escape Southie and attend college where the only advice that was given to her was, don't F this up. She recalled how she got into track and field in college and eventually distance running in grad school. She talks about accidentally falling into coaching at the age of 40 taking a small team that was on the brink of extinction and developing it into a nationally ranked program, being a full-time female coach at the collegiate level while still having a family and a social life, why she's always focused on surrounding herself with fantastic people, the importance of setting boundaries, the biggest barriers facing female coaches today at the collegiate level and elsewhere, and so, so much more. I also got to ask her some questions that I've been holding on to for almost 20 years and generally just enjoyed the opportunity to have an incredible conversation with someone who has meant so much to me. Okay, let's get right into it with Coach Karen Bowen. All right, Karen Bowen, to me, you will always just be coach, and it is one of my Greatest honors to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast.
0: And Mario, i got to be honest, it's one of my greatest honors to have coached you, not only uh, to have coached you, but to see the impact that you have had on the running community. So congratulations to you.
1: Well, thank you. I honestly don't think I would be where I am today, professionally, athletically, and certainly personally without your guidance. The impact that you had on my running career speaks for itself. The numbers don't lie. But the impact that you've had on my life, i don't. there's no way to quantify that. And even right now, as I try to search for the words to to describe what what it's meant to me, I can't find them. So I, I really can't thank you enough. And I wish we were able to have this conversation in person, situations not allowing for it. But really, um, to be able to sit down here and talk to you for the next hour or however long it, it ends up being, personally, it means a lot to me. But I think people listening to this will also take a lot away from it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting uh, that we should open with comments like that, which I do greatly appreciate um, because I read a small thing in one of the coaches' uh, little emails that I get and it's the five stages of coaching. And I'm definitely in stage four, uh, which makes reference. I think I spoke the other night um, when we were on Zoom. It makes reference to basically, you know, you've you've gone through the unpetrified phase of uh, do I know enough? to being comfortable with how much you know, to seeing the fruits of your labor. And stage four was you enjoy the relationships and the impact you've had on people as much as the wins and losses. So I I definitely am in stage four and what you just said uh, reiterates that perfectly.
1: Well, it's interesting to hear you say that having been at it for the past 23 years at the collegiate level. And for me, I mean, I've... I don't know when I would have considered myself like a coach. Like I started helping some of my former teammates right after they graduated to mm-hmm. get ready for like some cross-country and half marathons and things like that, just writing them trains training schedules. But it, but that's what it was. It was writing them training schedules. It wasn't coaching, it was a big difference. But now where that is, you know, aside from this podcast primary way that I make my living and I spend my working time. Is that's the approach that I try to take? Is that very much relationship-based approach? And there is obviously writing training schedules in there, in there, and helping people get ready for races. But it's very relationship-driven, and to me, that is something that I trace directly back to my time at Stonehill College and having worked with you from 2000 to 2004. So maybe you're entering that stage right now, or at least that you're you're cognizant of it. But I mean, you planted those seeds, at least for me, and I can probably say, quite honestly, for everyone else who's come through your program very early on?
0: It's, um, I I think, in any relationship, coach, athlete, um, friend, um, romantic involvements, whatever it may be, um, I think a lot of it stems from trust, right? We're we're attracted to somebody for a certain reason, a program, a neighborhood. um, But I think the trust factor of of you looking at me, me looking at you, and um, saying, do I trust this athlete, uh, to do what I think they could possibly do and that they trust me enough uh, to put it to practice. And we went through that uh, metamorphosis ourselves, right? Um, right, we all do, we all do. And, and you get better at, um, from the athlete's standpoint, you get better at trusting your coach if in fact if they deserve your trust. And as a coach, I've gotten better at not being insecure uh, and, you know, until they trust me. Uh, so now I understand that better. I understand the relationship part of it. I understand that most of the athletes that come my way had a relationship with someone else previous to me. Um, so I'm, very, I'm much more patient with that trust factor. Before, I was a bit insecure when I first started coaching. Um, you had to prove yourself, you know. So I think they're all stages of development um, for both the athlete and the coach.
1: It's really interesting to hear you say that because when I started at Stonehill in 2000 as a freshman, you had been there for, I believe, three years at that point, primarily working with the women's cross-country and then track teams, and you took over men's track either that year or the year before. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, I think but it was I was
0: two years in for track, and then the third okay. year I took over cross
1: yeah you didn't take over cross till my junior year, which would have been fall of two thousand two and I had a different coach when I came to stonehill and you weren't the reason that I came to Stonehill you didn't recruit me you didn't coach me that first season in cross country you didn't pick me up until track and you know I don't want to talk bad about the gentleman who was coaching cross country at the time that I got there but for me as a eighteen year old freshman coming in i I mean I wasn't mature enough myself, but I didn't have his trust in cross-country. And we had a bit of a contentious relationship. And fortunately, we were able to smooth that over many, many years later. But when I started running track that indoor season and you took over the reins, it was a complete flip for me. And I didn't come from a very established high school program. I didn't really have great coaching. And for me, at least in running, that was the first exposure that I ever had to a coach that had my complete respect. And even though you're only a few years in at that point, and I want to retrace your steps to getting there. I mean, you had me hook, line and sinker from the beginning. And that lasted throughout the four years that I was at Stonehill. I mean, if you had told me to run headfirst into a wall as fast as I could, because it would help me become a better miler, I would have done it. No questions asked. And I think that's a really, you know, special relationship um, that you develop with an athlete to, to get to that point where they just trust you
0: wholeheartedly. Oh, there's no question. And, and you have to nurture that trust and not abuse it. Um, I've I've had athletes and it's a great, you know, it's a great compliment to say I'd run through a wall for you. Um, but it also puts the onus on the coach not to take advantage of that wall. (laughs) Um, and and when do you push an athlete versus, you know, hold them back? We've also experienced that, right? So, um, we're all learning. It's like making a good recipe, Mario, you know, you we're all stealing from each other's stuff. And um, I've been lucky to, um, number one, have a strong personality, very similar to yourself. Um, And there were people that I trusted along the way and kind of took parts of their recipe to put in my own. Um, But it's uh, a, it's certainly a process and and some of it's fake it till you make it right. It's kind of like how many times have you stood on a starting line, very nervous, but not letting them see you sweat, so to speak. Um, In my early years of coaching, I had a great exercise science background, which gave me confidence. Um, I was kind of self-coached for a long time. I had a few coaches along the way, but a lot of it is just um, standing up like kids need somebody to trust. And uh, despite my being nervous at different times and hoping I was doing the right thing, I tried to never let you see me sweat.
1: Well, you did a good job of, of shielding us from that, because to me, you always seem very cool, collected, confident, and unrattled by whatever chaos was happening around you. And I'm sure that's only gotten better through the years, even though... Actually, I did see you in action, I guess, last fall at Nationals um, up here in Sacramento mm-hmm. when you guys were in, in town. But um, yeah, it's 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 20 plus years later. It's, uh, it's crazy to hear... You say that I'd love to go back to your beginnings in coaching because you didn't get started until pretty late in your life. You were forty years old when you took your first coaching job at Stonehill College in nineteen ninety-seven, and I'd love to just peel back the layers on that and understand how it came to be.
0: Uh, sure, it was an interesting journey. Um, you know, I grew up in the in the projects in South Boston, um, and uh, you know, it's a pretty salty neighborhood. I, I didn't know any different. Everybody. Considered it kind of a rough and tumble neighborhood, but I just figured it was only rough and tumble to people that didn't live there. That's how small my my world was. Um, it wasn't rough and tumble to me because I knew everybody. Um, I was very, um, I guess I was very athletic. I was considered one of the girls in the neighborhood who was, uh, you know, athletic. But there was just no resource or any outlet for that. Um, I could have been a cheerleader. Um, which was just not my thing, no no disrespect to any cheerleaders, it just wasn't my thing. Um, so I did anything I could that was done on your own. I hit tennis balls against a wall and entered myself in uh, tennis matches over at the in Common, only to get annihilated by real tennis players. Um, I ran a little bit, and then I was lucky enough to um, be poor enough, <laughs> crazy sounding, to uh, get accepted into a camp for underprivileged kids. That was... Uh, Held over at Boston University, so they would pick up kids from you know every walk of life uh, around the city, and we descended on the campus at Boston University, and it was called uh, Boston University Sports Camp. And every hour and a half, you went to a different sport, and uh, what better place for me to find myself in the heat of the summer um, than doing that? So I, I excelled at track and field then um, in, in the sports camp, and um, then when we went back to school it would all end again because there was no track and field. So I was talking to my gym teacher in eighth grade, and I told her that I was pretty good in track and field. And so she took me over to the meets at white stadium uh, behind Franklin park. Franklin park um, yeah. mm-hmm. And I would run, uh, some of the little summer, I mean, the uh, regular track meets over there, although I wasn't on a team. Um, it was fun and that's, that's what I would do. Um, I grew too old to be in the camp. I think I was 15. I think when you went a freshman in high school, you couldn't go anymore. Um, so they hired me as an unpaid junior counselor, um, which was great because it kept me, um, no, it, it, it kind of enlightened me that there was more to life outside of South Boston. Um, I saw people going to college. I, I didn't know anybody that went to college. Um, and they were all asking me, you know, as I got older, "Where are you going to college? Where are you going to college?" And I was embarrassed just to say the least that I really didn't have any plans or know anybody or how to do that. Um, combine that with the fact that my, uh, the end of my junior year, that during my junior year, we were told that um, force integration was going to be implemented that September, um, meaning there were white schools, there were black schools, and you know, they were trying to solve the problems of you know, segregation um, and had the idea. We know now that it doesn't work by force, but they would take half of each high school and send them across the city to a, another high school. Uh, keep in mind, you know, that's all we had security wise. You know, if my mother, single mother. And the projects ran into problems. She could call Mrs. Crowley, and Mrs. Crowley could intercept us or give us lunch or whatever. So when you disrupt that um, foundation of people taking care of people inside a community, um, it, it was very disruptive. It became race. It became very racial. Um, but I'd still like to believe that the majority of the people I knew weren't racist. They were just poor people not wanting to leave their um, their community. I mean, that's where you. New people and people knew you. So the violence just went nuts. Um, the National Guard was called in. I remember taking pictures out my front window with the National Guard out in front of my house. And my mother just said, you're not going to school because people were really getting killed. So most of my friends just dropped out. Um, and I still had this image of Boston University sports camp and people going to college. Um, so I joke and I say the only good thing that my father did for me is he happened to live in Braintree. So when I think of the gall on me, right, we've never owned a car, in my feeling? Um, I used his address, and I registered myself um, in at, at Braintree High School in October of my senior year. Um, and somehow or another, I got there. I used to take the train to Quincy. You know, they just started the red line. It just opened up. I took a bus and got dropped off down by the Braintree Mall, and I would hoof my way up to school, and I guess you would call it lying by omission. I never lied and said I didn't live in Braintree. I just didn't say anything and let people assume I moved there. Um, I was sewing so over my head uh, academically uh, because I was a good kid in the public school system. I was sort of kind of made my way through and passed. and um, so it was a certain, it was a struggle. Uh, but I did graduate. Um, I was afraid to go to the guidance counselor because I didn't want them to know I didn't live there. Um, so eventually somebody, uh, that knew a guy that went to college, his name is Chrissy Karens. I'll never forget him. He went to Brandeis, um, and he helped me fill out some applications, um, and financial aid forms. Um, we were fully in need. I think my family income at the time was $6,000. Um, and somehow or another, we got applications out only to get rejections because, I had such a tumultuous uh, transcript being from South Boston. I don't think people really wanted us to be we considered uh, dirty products in some regards. Um, but another person, again, I, I had a decent reputation around South Boston. I think people saw something in me that perhaps, you know, I didn't see it myself uh, drove me down in July to Bridgewater state college. And um, I've told the story before and uh Basically, used connections and came out and uh, said they're going to take you. Don't f this up. That was my college advice, and um, I got a newspaper. I found a room because all the dorms were already set. It was July. I found an advertisement that a woman was renting a room out in her house. I rented the room, um little two twin beds up in her. What was supposedly an attic? I guess she converted it. And um, got dropped off my first day of college with a pickup truck from somebody we who knew somebody who knew somebody who had a pickup truck, uh, dropped me off, and that's how I started my college education. So I think somewhere in both of us, Mario, um, nature versus nurture. I've never known what I should take credit for and what gifts I was uh, born with, but um, one of them had to be perseverance because uh, I persevered. Um, I pulled up my pants, tied my shoes, and went off to my first day of classes. I did horrendous my first semester. Um, Again, just didn't have a good academic background. But I uh, somehow or another bumped into my anatomy professor was the track and field coach. And somehow or another saw me running across campus and invited me to join the track team uh, my junior year. And that's how my running career started. It was the first organized track and field team I had been on.
1: If I can jump in there, when you were coming up, through school, I know you said you had a, a tumultuous transcript, but did you enjoy going to class and learning and being in that environment?
0: Oh, I did. In fact, um, when I was, I tested very high. Um, I don't mean that to sound, uh, you know, braggy. I don't mean that at all. I tested very high um, and I did get accepted into girls Latin, uh, which I was very excited about. And... Um, Unfortunately, I got a letter some somewhere afterwards that the quotas had to be filled, and my I didn't fit the quota or something like that. I you know I, I passed I, I passed to get in, but I I just couldn't get accepted there. I was heartbroken. Um, you know I was considered a very very good student um, until the learnings stopped um, during the build up to the the busing. I think the Whole reason for being in school was not what it should have been. Um, so I was a good student. I just think the learning had stopped.
1: When you got to Bridgewater State, what was the attraction to anatomy?
0: Um, I don't know. I loved the sciences. Um, I went in, I think, as a health and um, physical education major, simply because. No, I didn't really know what I was capable of doing. Um, started taking more and more courses in physiology and anatomy, kinesiology. Um, became a lab rat. Um, luckily for me, he took it, the professor took me under his wing. Uh, this Dr. Moran, who everybody nobody wanted to take his classes, cellular biology, took everything. I flourished. I loved his classes. Um, I also took a class in uh, New England history. Uh, to fulfill one of my requirements, and ended up almost with a minor in, in history, simply because, ironically enough, I just moved to Plymouth. I found this man fascinating, so I was just like a sponge, Mario I couldn't get enough. it uh, doesn't and, surprise me one bit. Yeah, I ended up with a um, exercise science major, got a teaching degree, and a um, history minor. <laughs>
1: Back to your youth growing up in South Boston, you described how you were attracted to sports that you could do yourself, hitting tennis balls and other things like that. Did you find yourself playing a lot with other girls? Were you, I I don't know if you were an only child, but like did things on your own? Did you settle in with the boys? Like what was that like for you?
0: Well, I had two brothers, um, both of which were very involved in sports, baseball, basketball, hockey. You know, there was just not organized sports for the... There was some softball teams, I guess, looking back. Um, City Point, what, what they call the... We were the lower end. It's funny how you um, get typecast at any point in your life, right? Up near Castle Island was was what we considered the rich part of South Boston, um, and that was the... Uh, we were the lower end where the projects were. Um, I did get picked a lot of times when my brothers were playing games, like... I would actually get picked one of the few girls. Um, I had a ton of girlfriends. Um, and, and like I said, during the school year, it wasn't as noticeable. And luckily for me, um, the summers were all around sports because I was at the sports camp. Um, so I had a ton of friends. Um, and that's where the divide started right around the forced integration drugs in alcohol was always big in South Boston. Um, and drugs really hit hard after the Vietnam War. Everybody's older brothers came back. Um, and the, the projects were um with drugs. So I, was, I, was, I had one foot in one world and one foot in the other world. Um, you know, I smoked my first cigarette, I think, at age 12. Um, and it was just this constant trying to find your balance. And I, I had a decent enough compass you know, I won't share with you all the dirty details of the things I did wrong, but I always knew I was wrong when I was doing them. It just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. I, I, knew, I knew that I was capable of more. And, um, you know, whenever you could take a right or a left, there were times I took a left and lost my way a little bit. Um, but I, I tended to really work hard to take the right. And um, I talk about that a lot in my coaching that you're going to hit roadblocks. I, I still do, you know, and we all have that inner compass. It's, it's how much you trust again. Um, you'll hear that a lot when I talk, um, how much you trust your instincts. Cause instinctually we all know we're screwing up, right? right. Um, you do, you just do it sometimes. You know,
1: you know when you're doing wrong
0: or when you're short. Exactly. And you sometimes it's worth it. It's like, yeah, that wasn't really a good idea, but boy, I had a lot of fun. Um, And other times it doesn't work out. So I was very lucky that I had a decent compass and a strong enough voice to listen to. I mean, a strong enough voice talking to myself to listen.
1: Did your brothers look out for you or were you sort of the tough, tougher sibling?
0: Um, I had an older brother um, and he went to overnight camp every summer. Um, My brother, Jackie, was much more laid back than me. Um, I was probably more of a type A personality. Um, and so I wouldn't say he looked out for me, but I wouldn't say that was a bad thing. I was just kind of capable of, I guess, not requiring him to, um, I had a younger brother, six years younger than me, um, who unfortunately uh, got caught up in the other side of life. And to this day struggles with drugs. Um, he ended up, um, you know, it evolved with drugs to a very bad extent for many years of his life. Um, and, and basically, I think right now he has cancer. Um, he's doing OK, but it, his whole life was a series of ups and downs in relationship to uh, some serious drug use.
1: Was your mom someone that you looked up to?
0: Yes. Yes. And now I, I looked up to her because I look up to her as much now as I ever did now that she's gone. And I realize how difficult it is raising three children um, of my own. And she has three. She had th- three children and did it on her own. Uh, my dad left when I was a very, very young. Um, so uh, I guess I'm more forgiving now, knowing the challenges of that. Um and she did a really good job because she was a disciplinarian. She did a really good job of um, not accepting unacceptable behavior. Um, she had a hard time sometimes living up herself to that same expectation. So that, that was some, sometimes difficult. Um, we all have leaders in our life that tell us what to do and don't necessarily do it th- themselves, right? Um, so she, she struggled in, in at the time. Um, You know, if I were being honest, she struggled with alcohol, but not what you would think would be your normal, what I thought at age 12. I always thought someone who struggled with alcohol was somebody that just was in the the gutter uh, drinking regularly, um, that there were people that didn't drink. And when they did, became a little bit of a different personality. So she wasn't somebody ever who was a regular drinker. But she was someone, when she did, um, you know, the, uh, the personality changes would occur. So it was um, interesting, you know, to, to see that. I think a lot of her behavior instilled in me the desire to get better and move along, though, too. So um, every person you encounter has some effect on your life. It's, it's, it's what you do with the effect that makes the most sense.
1: Was there ever any point when you were growing up, you described how you didn't know anything but South Boston, that was your entire world, that you just wanted to get out of there?
0: Um, I wanted to get away from some of the things there. I do regret now that when I closed the door, I slammed it shut. Um, there was just so much uncertainty there. Educationally, it was a mess. Um, there were riots every day. A lot of my friends were into crazy stuff. Um, you know, I had a younger brother who was struggling with drugs. I, I had a mom with, who was, you know, at that point as a young kid, she was fantastic. But one of the best lines I have ever, ever read in a book was by Barbara Lynch, who came on to be a famous chef. She she owns Number Nine Park um, and many other very famous restaurants around the Boston area and other places. And I read a book that she wrote cause she grew up in the projects with me and went to camp. And, uh, and she said, um, everybody thought that Whitey Bulger ran South Boston. What they didn't realize was the Irish Catholic mothers that ran South Boston. And unfortunately by age 16, all of them were burnt out. And that resonated with me. Um, I remember my mother, um, creating a fantastic childhood for me under those circumstances. But I think by, you know, my age, 16, she was probably burnt out, rightfully so. When did your dad leave? Um, I don't ever really remember him being around. Um, Ironically, he lived in South Boston, a mile or so from us. But you know what? And this sounds crazy to anybody who my own kids, um, most of the people I knew didn't have a dad. Um, and if they did, I was kind of glad I didn't have one <laughs> uh, because that's probably why a lot of them were in the projects to begin with. I mean, think back in the 19, late 1950s, early 60s. You know, the traditional mom stay at home and dad work for a living was great. You know, if, if you were on Leave it to Beaver. Um, but if, if you had a dad who wasn't stepping up, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for mom to make it work Um, for my mother to go to work. Where were we going to go? You know? Um, So thank God for, for welfare and for food stamps and for subsidized housing and for underprivileged camps for kids um, because that I will stand for always is what helped us to survive. Um, Without those things, I don't know where I would be. But my dad is um, was always in the area, but not in the home. Um, my Irish Catholic mother's, my Irish Catholic grandmother, you know, just had my mother convinced that divorce was unacceptable. And so my mom stayed probably married, but not my dad lived at a different part of South Boston. And uh, so I don't remember much of him. He came in and out of my life a little bit. Um, but you know what? It, it, it's probably good. It was more out than in because I didn't have a lot of up and down turbulence. It was consistency, consistency which was him not being that involved.
1: Did you have any male role models growing up?
0: Um, My mother. <laughs> uh, we used to call her the Army Sergeant. Um, not really, no. No. I would have to say, you know, I had some uncles that were great. All my, my mother comes from a phenomenal family. Um, all my aunts were fantastic. My uncle was a lifer in the Air Force, you know, drove planes and um, flew planes and lived in Germany. Um, my aunt, uh, Rosemary, um, got her degree from Harvard finally at age 80. Um, yeah, I come from a long lineage of strong women.
1: Well, and you've, I mean, we can get into this maybe later in the conversation, but you've passed that down to your own daughters who are doing some pretty incredible things. So it's, it's really cool for me to hear you trace that all back.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was one of the first women that, um, worked in the post office. Um, her husband was a Boston policeman who during the depression went to work one day and didn't come back. And so she was kind of put in the same situation my mom was where she just raised a family of, uh, of six all by herself.
1: Do you still stay in touch with any of your friends from the time that you grew up in South Boston?
0: Loosely. Um, I, I was very good friends with a lot of my brother's friends. You know, I mean, when we were 13. My brother was 15. I was 13. We didn't have much to do with each other as, as every family. Uh, my brother, Jackie, my older brother and I have become extremely close. Uh, I loved uh, to this day. Um, that's why I said when I slammed the door in South Boston, I, I slammed it in ran um and, and rightfully so at the time but a lot of the people that I grew up with in South Boston which is funny um we used to joke they're either in the jail or in the White House right people who made it or didn't um even Whitey Belger head of the mafia and his brother was head of the senate um it, it's uh I do loosely stay in touch but a lot of time went by Mario I moved when I was 17 to go away to college and um really never went back. I ended up uh, getting a graduate assistant position in East Strasburg in the Pocono Mountains. And uh, that first summer I came home, my intention was to stay home, to reconnect with a lot of my friends. Um, And things were just kind of a little bit unsettled in my home, a little bit unsettled in the neighborhood. So I remember calling a professor and saying, listen, you had mentioned a grad assistant position. He said, well, it's in the Pocono Mountains. So Karen Bowen from the projects in South Boston, who's willing to take anything that's thrown her away. I got my license. This is a true story. That summer, never had a license, never had a need to. And then I bought a car for $500. I packed it up. And in July, I drove uh, that car into the Pocono Mountains and got a hotel room at the Holiday Inn and the Delaware River Gap. And um, started my GA position in the labs. I taught exercise science laboratories. And uh, my assistant coached a little bit and helped out with the track team that first year there. And bartended nights.
1: <laughs> Let's put a pin in that because I definitely want to get into that period of your life. But last part about growing up in South Boston. Looking back now, if you could identify a handful of lessons that you learned growing up that have shaped who you are today, what would those be?
0: I would say, number one, to people hearing my story, they probably thought it was a very, very difficult way to grow up. But I knew so many kids in Southie who had it far worse than I did. Um, I had stability in my home, in terms of relatively speaking. Um, I wasn't in an abusive household. My mom wasn't a mom who was bringing home various boyfriends, which was very common to some of my girlfriends. Um, I think there were a lot of single parent women who just needed a guy in their life because there weren't a lot of opportunities for women back then to work when I was a child. Um, And, you know, there were just families that had it so, so much worse that my family was like considered, you know, pretty high-end family. we were very well um, respected and looked up to. Um, we always worked with young kids and um, so it, it, it wasn't it was very difficult, but I always knew the less, one of the lessons was there are people that have it a lot worse than you do. Um, so I would say that was lesson number one. Lesson number two was nothing's ever going to be handed to you. So if someone gives you an opportunity, you take advantage of it. Um, Those words weren't said to me directly, but it was learned that if you want something, you go after it. Um, That was definitely a lesson that I carry with me. I don't expect that anybody owes me anything. Um, That's just not the way I was brought up, and it's just not the philosophy I live by. And well, and say- it's one, it's
1: one, that's one that you've shared. I mean, certainly with me as one of your athletes speaking from my own personal experience. But for me, and that was the second time I'd heard it because my dad, who immigrated here from Italy, you know, he's about the same age mm-hmm. as you and grew up in Worcester, which wasn't South Boston. It wasn't exactly the you know, the, mm-hmm. the most, uh, white collar place in the entire world, um, has told me the same thing. He's like, look, no one's ever going to hand you an opportunity. He's like, you, you know, you create them for yourselves. And if someone, you know, does serve something up to you, he's like, you got to take advantage of it cause it might not come back.
0: It's absolutely true. And I think the other thing is, is we all have weaknesses, you know? So do you spend all your time wallowing in your weaknesses or do you recognize your strengths? start
1: with that back to your time at Bridgewater State you had described earlier how the track and field coach saw you running across campus one day and reached out to you were you a distance runner at the time is that just you know. something you sort of did um to I don't know pass the time keep general fitness I'd love to dig into that a little bit yeah
0: I never never was a distance runner now I used to sort of just like to be fit so I would like run up football, bleacher stadiums, things like that, kind of without realizing it now, probably created my own little exercise programs. I just liked being active. Um, he saw me running across campus trying to lose the 10 pounds I put on my freshman year without being perfectly candid. Um, and um, my biggest transition, I mean, I morphed so, so much in college. I came in a tough kid from South Boston, a little bit of um, edge on my shoulders, and I tell everybody: when you see someone acting tough, um, always look at it as it's usually a mask for insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, it keeps people at a distance. And uh, you know, I, I came from a, a partying environment. I had a fake ID when I was fifteen. Um, so when I came into college, it was like, oh, this is gonna be awesome. i got all these new people. Um, I had that one foot in one world and one foot in the other, and you know, I gradually started getting really into the books and, um, you know, I started working out a little bit harder. Um, I went out for the tennis team without any structured tennis behind me and I made the tennis team. Um, so I started trying to get back in shape from being a kind of a nitwit my freshman year. And um, that's when my anatomy professor saw me running and said, listen, you, you know, you look like a runner. I was like, well, it was." Great, you know, I won all these awards in my little camp. Um, and uh, so that's how it, how it started. The following year, John Laverty, who coaches at Plymouth North now, I have kids on the team every year from Plymouth North. Um, he took over the program the following year. Um, so the transition and the growth and the impact that people had on me in college was, I, I can't even explain it. It, it just, I, I just was a sponge. I, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and I changed completely or I became it, who I was supposed to be. I don't know.
1: Maybe a little bit of both could be, yeah. um, did Bridgewater state even have a women's track team at the
0: time? They didn't have women's cross country. I ran cause he said, well, if you want to get in shape, you probably should run cross country. So I was on the men's cross country team, um, you know suck in air. I can't imagine. I, I don't even know what I, a slow I ran. but there was Were only, you the three, only female. There was two of us, three of us, maybe three of us. Um, and then I think my last year it became, they had some females, but track track was really the thing I was familiar with. I wasn't familiar with distance running at all because I was a good sprinter at the camp. I was fast. I was, you know, it was really funny. My black friends joke all the time. Uh, I was considered the fast white girl. Um, which is kind of funny, Um, the the fast white girl at camp. And um, so I thought I was more of a sprinter. So it kind of did that like, well, you're probably not as fast as really good sprinters. So if you don't get faster, you go farther. Um, So I ran the 880 mainly in college and was so fortunate um, to be in college at the same time as as Debbie Mueller, who went on to qualify for Olympic trials. Uh, Aggie Lakature was a Brockton girl who won the state championship in the 800. 880 and this uh girl uh, muriel uh, corbett she was from north shore and we put together um a 4 by 8 team that ended up winning the eastern championships that year
1: were you starting to fall in love with track and field at that time
0: no (laughs) (laughs) i love the thought of it i love the thought of it i was stubborn enough to think like yourself Mario. very much very parallel lives in some regards I just thought always that I could be better than them (laughs) if I worked hard enough. You know, I probably graduated with stress fractures in both legs. Looking back, I had my shins were on fire the entire senior year, I remember. But I got more into distance running post-collegially.
1: What spurred that?
0: Um, Not having organized track in grad school Um, and liking being fit. So I started running a lot more this summer after I graduated um, And then I continued to run more and more and more when I moved to the Poconos.
1: Were you running on your own or did you sync up with a group?
0: Yeah, I synced up with a group. Um, you know, the, I, I was helping out with the track and field team at East Strasburg, uh when I could. And so I would run with them here and there. And then I ran with a group of guys, um, one of which was from Long Island. And they asked me, they needed a leg for a relay and they asked me if I would, So for a short stint, I ran for the Long Island Track and Field Club, the Long Island distance team. Never been to Long Island in my life at that point in time. But no, I just took any opportunity that came my way and started racing a bit. Um, And then I just took off, you know. Um, You know, over the years I was there, I was ridiculously busy. I I taught a class from 8 to 10. I taught another class from 1 to 3. I had classes for grad school myself in the evenings. And um, I worked I had an internship at the Pocono Hospital in the cardiac. I worked in cardiology for 20 years. You probably know that. But um, my interest in exercise science in grad school became more geared to the cardiac patient. Um, so I took an internship over at the uh, Pocono Hospital. And we worked um, research for implementing exercise in the cardiac uh, recovery process.
1: When did you start? Seeing some success in distance running?
0: Um, I remember jumping into some road races when I lived out in Pennsylvania. And I never knew, if you ask me right now what I ran for times in college, I couldn't tell you. Um, and I remember starting to receive some recognition um, in my time starting to come down, but I was never time oriented. My only coach that I ever had in college. Um, geared everything toward how many points did you get for the team. So I was always about place instead of times. But I started placing um, in different events around Pennsylvania. And I remember winning a race. And my name was Fleming, Karen Fleming, with two M's. And there was a very famous distance runner, male Fleming. You probably know. I'm Fleming. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he won the men's division, and people thought we were either husband and wife or brother and sister. And I remember thinking, my goodness, he's famous. <laughs> um, and I, I just started realizing that the harder I worked, the better I would get at this, and probably overtrained a, a great percentage of my life. Came back to Massachusetts and went to another level.
1: Have you always had a competitive streak in you?
0: Yes. Extremely competitive. I don't know if it's per- competitive or perfectionist syndrome. I I, I don't know. I, I got very bad migraines as a little kid. I was brought to children's hospital and they told my mom I had perfectionist syndrome that I literally would not stop oh. working at something until I perfected it. So I always like remember that. And my mother saying, Karen, remember. You're not everything's perfect so i don't know if now it's considered competitiveness they're both kind of one and the same in some regards aren't they
1: sure yeah I, I think so um but hearing you just walk through your life a little bit even you know when you got to bridgewater state and kind of dove into anatomy you're like oh i, I actually like really want to learn this stuff um mm-hmm. you would dive yourself into it and then what you just described with running you start seeing like a little bit of success and you're like oh well, if i work a little bit harder at this, like I'll get, I'll get better. Um, and I'll get faster and maybe I can win some, some more races having, um, you know, run under you as as an athlete. I think you bring that same mentality into your coaching as well.
0: Yeah. it's, It's a, it's a blessing and a curse, you know, um, because the things that I've picked to perfect, there is no such thing. Um, you can always get smarter, you can always get faster, (laughs) you can always coach harder, so there are these endless, infinite um, things, whereas, you know, then you have to learn boundaries, right, we talk about that all the time, Um, it's, uh, yeah, I've I've chosen things to delve into that, um, I know that if I do more, this will get better.
1: This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting edge running apparel. Their focus is real world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? Does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat wicking, stink free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Talk to me a little bit about your competitive running career when you moved back to Massachusetts. Did you join a local club? Were you running in some bigger races? There are tons of them around New England. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that because you used to talk about it a little bit sort of in passing when I was at Stonehill, but at the time anyway, I never really dug much deeper than, oh, she was pretty fast at one point of her life.
0: Yeah, no, nor did I, because I, I, my background was so different than the people that I ran with. I always had more respect for them than I did myself. My resume was just never as impressive, so my own running was never something that I kind of bragged about, I guess, for lack of a better term. But um, looking back, I, I ran pretty fast. Um, I had I got married and had a child at 27 and um, I moved into a new neighborhood. I didn't know anybody. And uh, I, unfortunately for me, when I was um I was due, I remember being, my first child was due March 17th. I thought, oh, so exciting coming from South Boston to have a St. Patrick's Day baby. And uh, unfortunately, I went into labor December 2nd, which, do the math, isn't a good thing. Um, so here I was, 27 years old, in a new town um, with a new job in cardiology. I scored this great job. I had been working for a year at Martin Hospital. And all of a sudden, I was told I'm going to spend the next three months in bed. Um, And you know my personality, Mario. So this was pretty. Yeah,
1: you don't sit still very
0: well. (laughs) And you know what's funny? I did. I sat in bed for two and a half months. And um, because it wasn't really about me, um, it was about my child. And it was without the internet. Um, You know, so there's a lot of time to just be by yourself and and soul search, if you will. And, um, you know, I just said that, you know, this is the way it is. This is my you know, this is what I have to do. Um, luckily I, I carried till February and Courtney was six weeks early. Um, little teeny, little premature, little baby. Um, and I was so happy to be out of bed. Um, I never really paid attention to the postpartum rolls and rags and everything. Um, when she was about two weeks old, I, I kind of started jogging around the neighborhood a little bit. Um, you know, we had this little half mile loop and I remember like running the half mile loop and it felt like a marathon and then running it twice and then um, running it like 17 times because I was afraid to venture too far from the house. You know, Carl would be in the house with the baby, my husband, but I still felt as though I had to be near him. And it became like a little game after the baby. You know, I, I went back to work eventually um, just three days a week because I figured after spending two or three months in bed, I just didn't want to leave this little kid every day of the week so I went back to work um, Tuesday Thursday Saturdays cow was home Saturdays and my I had a, a person that I knew um, that watched Courtney two days a week and regardless I spent one hour every day running and because I only had the hour I must have just hammered um, and I would hammer a run for an hour and I jumped into a road race I remember shortly thereafter, And I ran, you know, probably 18 high or 19 minutes in around that. She was young. She was just, she was tiny. Um, And that was remarkable to me. Um, So then I was like, wow, I wonder what I can do. And I, I just, you know, kind of started doing hill workouts and writing up my own workouts. I bumped into a bunch of guys, Phil Crone, you know, Phil. And I started running with these men up at uh, D.W. Fields Park. They met every night at 5.30. And Carl was so supportive, I think. People would say, like, "Oh, well, he's so supportive, but he also knew what I went through and the sacrifices that I made to, to create this nice little family we had. So uh, he was playing semi-pro basketball at the time, and we just worked it out. You know, he i packed pack the baby up and go to his games, and I would then, you know, at 5.20 every night, run with these guys at the park, and they were all obviously much faster than me. And me being so stubborn, um, I just stayed with, I would just hang with them. Um, I had my second child and kind of did the same thing. Two years later, I had another child, kind of did the same thing. Um, My time was very valuable. I was, it it gave me purpose. So I became this 100% into being a mother, um, but still seeing patients. Now I went down to two days a week, Um, seeing patients for a private physician. The head cardiologist at Morton Hospital hired me, which is great. Went back to school, um, and uh, in diagnostics, got certified in Doppler flow studies and cardiac ultrasound, and all these other things. So I was making a, a huge um, amount of money in a short period of time because my skill set was pretty valuable. So I could work two six-hour days and make a decent living. And my running took off. Um, you know, I I got hooked up with the uh, uh, BAA. I was running for Reebok New England. Um, I've been at some races, and I don't know if you remember Jane Waltzel. Mm-hmm. Um
1: I know the so, name.
0: Yeah, so she lived in my neighborhood, and Judy McCrone, who was a, a stud runner out of um, UMass Amherst, they all lived in my area, and we started introducing ourselves. And two of them had children, and um, they they were talking about trying to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon, and talked me into giving it a shot. So um, I got hooked up with these women who were very, very competitive, and they sort of took me under their wing, and um, we trained together pretty aggressively. Unfortunately, I fell in a hole uh, two weeks before Twin Cities Marathon and was on crutches for three weeks. So my dream three days before my marathon did not become a reality, but um, three of them did qualify. And you know, Jane ran a 235, my other group, So I, I, I felt pretty confident I could have probably run around, you know, 250. I think 256 was the qualifier at the time or whatever. It was I forget now. Um, I also knew marathoning wasn't for me. <laughs> I, I don't have the patience for it. Uh, so I did a couple <laughs> marathons. I think I ran two fifty. I, I after I my ankle healed, um, I lost about eight weeks, but got back into shape a little bit and just said, "Well, let me just do a marathon." Went down to to uh, Rocket City, Alabama, with Bobby Hodge. Do you know Bobby Hodge? Yeah,
1: Bob was yeah. my first post collegiate mentor.
0: Okay,
1: so I've talked about this with him. I don't think I've ever talked about this with you, but he shared this story with me and I'd love to hear your version of it.
0: Yeah. So he was down there at this marathon. I was there. Um, We went down as a team, myself and two women from BAA. And unfortunately, I don't know if Bobby probably mentioned it. They had a windstorm uh, during the, the marathon and Bobby won it. And I'm pretty sure Bobby won it. And the headline the next day was, um, record winds hit, <laughs> I just said, this marathoning thing is for the birds, you know what I mean? It's like, you go all the way down there and it was a windstorm, but I, I think I ran 258 or, you know, nothing that I was overly thrilled about, but it was, it was kind of, I was a rookie it. I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and it was fun. It was fun, but it made me realize I could handle the training. I just didn't really want to train for that type of race. And, and one thing led to another, you know, and I remember, you know, working hard to try to my goal is to break 17 in the 5K. And, um, and I think I ran 28 high in, in the 8K and um, loved cross country. I probably over-raced, over-trained, but I loved it. I just loved it. I loved the community. I felt as though it was the first time in so, so long that I had a true community of friends and consistency and stable. You know, stable. Um, so it, it brought a lot of um, joy to my life. It brought a lot of Good people into my life. It brought a lot of discipline, which I hadn't had um, really before. And uh, it it just was a whole new world. I was a completely different person than the person that uh, left South Boston.
1: And knowing some of the relationships that you have now, it seems that a number of them came from that period in time, whether it was. Judy, who you describes, I remember seeing her during my time at Stonehill every once in a while. Randy Thomas, who coaches mm-hmm. at BC, and I know is a good friend of yours. They were all of that same era.
0: Yep, I remember doing a workout at uh, Northeastern University in Dedham, their track, and um, Kenny Halla. I don't know if you know Kenny. Kenny was a standout at William and Mary. Well, you amazing.
1: introduced us to him when we were down there right. for the relays my maybe sophomore year. And I think they called him, he was called like a running Neil. Like that was yes. like, his, yeah, his exactly. I remember him telling this story when we were down at William Mary. I'm such a nerd. Um, and And I remember like I went down this rabbit hole in the internet. Back then wasn't what it is now, but I remember reading everything that I could about Kenny Halla because he was yeah. a friend of yours, and I was like, "This is a guy that I want to be like." Yeah,
0: he had William and Mary's records at the time in the five k and the ten k. Um, so he was writing me up workouts, and um, I think our paths crossed with BAA, and he wanted to get into coaching and was working a little bit alongside Fred Tressler, and. Um, you know, Fred said, you know, he wants to get into coaching. Would you mind if he wrote you up some workouts? I'm like, no, I've been everybody's experiment, right? So Kenny's younger than me, so it was awkward for him. But I remember him giving me a workout that I had to do um, these series of 800, I mean, uh, 400s, because I was going to run the mile. They used to have the Twilight Beats in Dedham. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to run the Twilight meet. And I was on the track and I, I did one of my 400s. And Bill Rogers came up and he said, I noticed you're doing 400s. I timed one of them. You're doing them at the same time in the same time I am would you mind if I did him with you and I was you
1: know here I am like oh my god Bill Rogers
0: wants to do a workout with me of course he was doing 200 400s with 30 second recovery and I was doing 400s at mile pace with a long recovery so every time I was ready to go he would go with me Um, so it was kind of you know those experiences what other sport Mario you know what I mean could you ever have that experience happen to you Um, so there's been some great things along the way and I was in an era that um, I wasn't one of the big guns, but I was on the heels of uh, a time in Boston where there was so much excitement going on on the roads, especially like Randy Thomas owns so many American Road Records. Uh, road racing was a lot different than it is now. Like Falmouth, um, Tuss uh, used to call the Body Bow; it's now the Tusk NK. Um Road racing like meant something. They had. Like the same people would show up for these things. Now it still does, but there's so much now, you know, there's so many events now.
1: I just Um, think back to my time at Stonehill, which was, you know, far beyond the period of time that, that you're describing and just going to DW Fields Park. I think it was like Tuesday, Wednesday night in the summer and running this like odd distance loop. I forget what it was. (laughs) 3.75
0: miles.
1: (laughs) Looking back at the records from your era (laughs) and like all of these big guns would just come out and pay Mm -hmm. their $1 entry fee or whatever it was in the middle of the week. And they would rip this course at like, you know, 4.30 (laughs) per (laughs) per mile, 4.40 per mile. And you're like, yeah, I'm really like, I'm not on that same level. I'm not. I'm not playing the game at the same level
0: <laughs> these, guys,
1: these guys were. But that was all from like you know the the 80s and
0: 90s. Right. No frills. No frills. I remember getting my first female trophy. I always got men's trophies. <laughs> Never have female trophies. I, and my brother said to me, "You. have a, I don't know if this is a good thing to say. I was like, "Hey, wait a minute. Your trophy has boobs on it. <laughs> it was just a different era. It was just nobody cared. You know. So. It was just really a
1: fun time. At any point during your competitive heyday, had you thought about coaching? You mentioned how you did a little bit of it as a grad assistant in East Stroudsburg, but was it on your radar at all?
0: No. I I like being around it, but no. When I did my student teaching in college, I I helped out with the track team at Braintree High School. Loved helping out uh, in in East Stroudsburg, as I mentioned. Um, I loved the science end of it, so that was that was the helpful part um, to the coaches from me. I had the exercise science background, so I never really cared about people split so much as like the energy system we were trying to work with. Um, but I, I like the science of it. I really never saw myself coaching, although I wrote up all the workouts um, for all the runners in my area. Um, you know, Phil Krohn and all those guys. And when I was with BAA, I was actually had input into, you know, what they were, were doing. But for me, it was more um, the fascination with the energy outputs that we were trying to tap into. I would get so frustrated. I'm like, well, what are we trying to work on? Are we trying to work on you know, endurance? Are we trying to work on turnover? Um, so that knowledge was always there, but I, my intention was to put it to use, in the cardiac world. Um, It just so happened that it crosses over very well in the running world. Um, So I coached myself and a lot of other people and um, prior to going to Stonehill and Stonehill was just a mistake. You know, I mean that I was a warm body at a time they needed one. It wasn't, it wasn't my lifelong journey. I was supposed to be doing someone a favor for a year (laughs) and here we are.
1: Well, let's dig into that. You were working in, Cardiology you had a great job at that point. I believe all your kids had been born by that point. Mm-hmm. What was the initial conversation and who was it with that brought you to Stonehill College to help out with the women's cross country team in 1997?
0: Well, I was uh, 40, and um, I did a lot of my. I started a lot of my runs at Stonehill. <laughs> because Morton Hospital is in Taunton and I lived in Stoughton. So Stonehill was along the way and they had lights. So in the darkness, I could still run there. Um, My brother-in-law, Patrick, was the baseball. He he played baseball and basketball at Stonehill and was uh, currently the, was and still is the baseball coach there. So um, needless to say, we went to watch Pat play ball there. My husband, Carl, uh, worked a lot of the basketball camp. So he knew all the staff and he knew uh, the athletic director, the new athletic director at the time. She was the basketball coach at Stonehill and then turned athletic director, Paula Sullivan, uh, first female mentor that I had as a as boss. Um, and evidently it, it, she had a neighbor who had a daughter who was a very good runner and said to Paula, I'd like her to go to Stonehill. How's the program? And Paula was affected by that because she knew the program wasn't any good. So she said, if I'm going to be an athletic director and offer a program, I'm going to offer a real collegiate program. So she said, therefore, we're dropping track and field um, because it's not a successful program. So they called, Pat called me and said, um, you know, would you be interested in covering the basis for the year, they're dropping the program, they're going to turn into a club, but they need someone to finish out the year. Um, And I think the only reason he did that is because I was running, (laughs) you know, he was the only person that would probably do it. And he didn't even ask me to be honest with you, Mario. He asked Carl, him and Carl were talking on the phone. I could hear Carl saying, sure, she'll do it. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, they need somebody else. They need somebody to help out down in Stonehill. They have a few kids who run there and they don't have a coach. And I told them that you'd be interested, so that's how it started. Um, that's I such a in, Carl move. <laughs> such a Carl move. And uh, so they said, um, that get through track, and that, that was supposed to be the end of it. So they gave me two thousand dollars, and um, we, had we had seven
1: seven women kids. on the team. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Every one of them, of course, as luck would have, it was a different event. So I was coaching the shot put, I was coaching the hurdles, but I went to this sports camp and I did all those events. You know what I mean? So I I did them for six years because you had to, you couldn't pick an event there. You had to do every event. And um, so I knew enough to get them through it. Um, And then the following year, they asked me if I would take over cross country which I said, yes, because I kind of enjoyed it a little bit. Um, and then they asked me, I su- they said, well, what did you think about track? You know, what kind of turn into a club? I said, like, I think it's a shame. I said, this is a beautiful campus. I just hate to see track and field dropped anywhere. And I said, you really should keep it. And they said, okay, well, we'll consider it if you'll do it. Um, and I really didn't want to coach track and field. I just wanted to coach cross country, but I knew that cross country would be terrible without track and field uh, in the other part of the year. So I agreed to it. Um, Still got the $2,400. They didn't get a raise. Um, And that's how it all started.
1: And to chime in here, Stonehill College at the time did not even have a track on campus. (laughs) So it would have been a very easy cut to get rid (laughs) of that program because there was no actual footprint. (laughs)
0: And we weren't allowed to use the indoor track because that was for recreation only.
1: (laughs) It was a garbage indoor track anyway. It was handy in the wintertime, but I swear more people got injured on that than anything else. It's not any better now. (laughs) So fast forward a little bit. Now you're coaching year-round at least the women's program at Stonehill, I imagine you're still working in cardiology because $5,000 a year. $2,400 was not going to do it. No, for the whole year. Okay, so that's definitely not going to do it. Um, where does it go from there? Do you start thinking about recruiting and bringing in some better athletes and really building this program? Because you, you can't really have a competitive track team with seven people.
0: Right. Um, Cross-country had about seven women, Um, but I remember they were twins, and I remember one of them telling me she hated to run, and the other one telling me, someone, one of the kids told me she had underdeveloped airways, and I said, well, do you have asthma? She's like, no, underdeveloped airways. And then another one told me that she faints when her heart rate goes high. So I was like, oh, my goodness, what's going on here? Um, Anyway, we ended the year with five. Then I went up to the admissions office. And when people apply to college, they fill out, you know, they have a code if they did a sport and then another code if they did a specific sport. So I got all the persons with the code that had track in it. And I wrote a letter and I found out their post office box numbers. And I put a letter in every one of their post office boxes um, to come by and sign up for track, like a high school program. And I sat at a little table and uh, some kids came by and signed up. And anytime I saw anybody run across campus, I would kind of pull over. They used to joke that that I was the Stonehill stalker. Um, I would pull them over and, you know, how come you're not running? How come you're not running? Um, So that's how it really started. And, um the first real recruit I brought in was Laura Troll. and I remember calling her and you know all the time, and she said, "Well, what's the team like? I'm like, "It's terrible <laughs> you know I, I remember just being honest with her and just saying, "But it could be good, and if you really want to go here you know i i I promise you I'll, I'll do everything I can to make you good
1: but that was a spark that the program needed because. It wasn't more than a year or two later that you guys were competitive, at least at the conference level, I believe. Yeah.
0: And the conference was, you know, no disrespect intended, but, you know, it wasn't the men's conference was fairly strong, I thought. The women's conference was okay. They had good individuals along the way. Um, and we, we put together some really good teams then, Mario. When you look back at, at the talent that we had, right, um, on that women's team it was, it was Really something. Um, but they made each other better, you know. I think the the thing I brought to the table is I, I had the background in exercise science, but I, I probably am a better motivator than I than a coach. I don't know if one is, is, is the same, but um, we really bought in. And I really bought in. Like, I really believed that we could be good. I really, truly believed that. And I, I got them to believe it. In fact, when we hosted our first N 10 championship, we had this snow squall come across the field. It was freezing. It was like blown sideways. And I remember bringing the women into the sports complex. And I said, everybody be quiet. I said, just listen to all the people that are complaining about the weather. And we're all listening. And I said, I'm gonna mar- you're going to march out that door and you're going to beat every one of those women that has been complaining about the weather because this is our campus. And we just like pounded our chest and walked out there and we won. Um, but I just remember loving it and believing in it and just wanted people to believe in me. And so to see it grow like that, it, it, it's like raising a child. <laughs> it was just so gratifying.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and at this point, your child is now a young adult and out of the house, so to speak. Um, And I mean, objectively, I I guess I can't be objective because I was part of the program. Looking back at it, um, it's something to be really proud of. I mean, your women have gone to nationals and cross-country, what, 19 years in a row? Mm -hmm. I know the men have gone every year since my senior year. That was 2003. And we'll get into that here in a little bit because when I started at Stonehill in Fall of two thousand, you weren't the men's cross country coach, but we were the laughing stock of New England. Um, we beat one team at the All New England championships at <laughs> the head of Framingham State. Um, but we got beat by everyone else, division one, two, II, and three. And fast forward to my senior year, we were fourth in the first non division one school behind, I believe it was Providence, BC and maybe Brown. Um, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, which unfortunately just cut their men's,
0: men's cross country
1: and track program yesterday, which we don't have to get into, but take me back to like around, was it ninety eight, ninety nine that you took on the men? Like how, how did that next step occur? Did Paula come to you and say, Hey, you've done a great job with the women. Uh, what do you think about taking over men's track? I, I don't think I've ever heard this story.
0: Yeah. I, I didn't really want it. Um, to be honest with you, I, I didn't originally want, even want the job at all uh, it found me um yeah there there was a coach you know their previous who had been there ironically I think 23 years as well and um he kind of got to the point I was coaching track and the men I took over the men's program because I don't know if he wanted to give it up or I forget how I got the men's program, but I got track first. Right. And then the, 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 the guys started to get better. Um, they saw some improvements and then they would go back to cross country with another coach. And there was kind of a conflict of interest because, you know, people would come and ask me questions um, about what they felt should be different. Um, and I would have to say, listen, it's cross country season. It's not really my place. Um so I think one of the guys or a couple of the guys on the team talked to the athletic director about the possibility of my taking over cross country and um and her talking to me and I said I would only answer that question if the current cross country coach decided to retire because I didn't want my saying yes to have any bearing on his being moved away. Um, I just didn't think that was ethical. Um, and shortly thereafter he did want to retire. Um, and she asked me again and that's when I said, yes, I, in other words, I I didn't want him pushed out because of me. I said, "If, if you don't think he's good enough or you want to go in a different direction, you have to make that move. Or if he wants to go in a different direction, he has to make that move, but I'm not going to make the first move.
1: And I remember you telling us that when it was, I mean, all of this finally happened that, you know, he did retire and you took over and you were like, hey, just so everyone here knows, um, here's how this went down. And it's
0: important to me. You yeah. And,
1: and you were just very a very clear communicator from the start, which I knew because I'd worked with you on the track for two years prior to that. And I know you were just like, no BS, didn't pull any punches. But I mean, that was I'm recalling it now because it was really impressionable on me. Where you were like, "Look, this is this is the situation. Like, let's just lay it all out here so that there's no confusion."
0: Mm Yeah, I I I just didn't want to push him away. You know, I wanted it to be not. It wasn't my call.
1: What were your initial impressions of our group of guys when you took us over for cross country? You were able to observe us from afar the previous few years because you were coaching the women's team and we were at the same meets and you had us on the track, but how were you thinking about the team when you inherited it?
0: It wasn't a team. It was a group of individuals representing an institution, but it wasn't a team. That was my first impression. Um, There were little pods. Um, A couple of guys would come in and start their workouts and, Somebody else would come in and start their workouts. Um, their input was equally as strong as the coach's input. Um, so people could be game changers. It could, the workout could change based on what the athletes wanted or didn't want that day. Um, so I didn't really feel like it was a team. I just thought it was a group It was much different than the group that I ran with. You know what I mean? You did it if you wanted to, you showed up if you wanted to. Um, yeah, I just think they needed um, someone to take over, you know, and, and take control. Um, yeah, I, I just felt as though it was just a bunch of guys kind of doing their thing, and there was some that were very proud. You know, they they, they were proud of what they were doing, and it wasn't all bad. It's just that there was a they need a little more of connect the dots.
1: Mm-hmm. From your vantage point, was it challenging to get? that group of guys to buy into you as the coach and buy into this idea of oh god in. yes. Um, yeah. That,
0: the, uh, at the time I didn't know if it was the female thing. I was confident enough in my knowledge. And I used to say all the time I heard it from somebody a long time ago, I read it somewhere. Um, Always remember that you don't know everything, but you know more than them. Um, and that's what I used to say. And it's like, you know, I, I didn't know everything, but I know more than you. Um, and some people liked the old regime because the expectations weren't as grand. Um, the workouts maybe weren't as hard. I don't know. Um, there was a little bit of, you know, you, you took over and, you know, they liked that old style which which is fine I knew that was going to happen um and it was just a matter of of I think everybody needs mentors and good leadership so the first thing I worked on with the men was just being a strong leader um and just saying well this is the way it is and this is what we're doing if you don't enjoy that that's fine um but this is the way it is and um just took control
1: I remember too when you took over cross country my junior year, you didn't name a captain. No. And that to me, like I, I was our top runner at the time. And I think if I'm if I'm being honest, and I probably told you this, like I was a little peeved. I was like, what do you like, how are you not naming a captain? And like, how is it not me? Because I'm the top guy on the team. I, I mean, I'll admit I had that type of attitude back then. I'm not proud of it. Um, but that's you know. That I've matured a lot since then. Then as well, but you know, it was it was the next year, my senior year, when we finally, I think, did have a team for the first time and a very good team at that. Where I was able to understand why you had made that decision.
0: We didn't know who the best leaders were. We knew who the best runner was, but we didn't know who the best leaders were. I That's still good. say to this day, Mario, you know, not all captains are great leaders, and you don't have to be a captain to lead, right? So I I say to kids all the time, it doesn't matter what the title is on the side of your jacket. Are you a leader? Let's see who leads.
1: During this period in time when you took over the men's program, from a training standpoint, did you treat the men and the women any differently? I mean, obviously they're racing different distances. The women would be 5K, 6K, men would be 8K, 10K. So, you know, from a specificity standpoint, things aren't exactly the same, but did you treat them any differently otherwise?
0: Uh, not really. My comfort level with the guys was much higher than my comfort level with the women, surprisingly. I had never really trained. Uh, I trained much more frequently with men than I did with women. I had never had a woman's coach Um, a woman as a coach. So, and I had brothers. Um, so my comfort level athletically with, with males was, was much higher. Um, not having had the organized sports in high school and very minimal in college. So that part of things didn't bother me at all. I think it was probably a little bit more troublesome for some of the guys. Um, on the team than it was for me. But the body is the body. Um, The mind is the mind. The biggest difference I've found with the men and the women, and I found this since as far back as I can remember, is women, generally speaking, and I don't know nature nurture, what it is, but um, a lot of times don't have the confidence in their ability that I feel they should have. And a lot of times there were guys that were overly confident uh, in their ability, and needed some toning down, um, but human nature is human nature. Like you, just basically coaching personalities. Um, so I would say I didn't coach them that much differently now. It, the conversations a lot of times are different. The men would be much more aggressive in their opinion, whereas a lot of times I, I found that the women. Um, they're not as comfortable with confrontation. Um, So it seemed like the men were confronting me more, but that was okay. I was fine with that.
1: From an X's and O's standpoint, you had worked with some folks in the past who wrote workouts for you. You had a background in exercise science. I still remember going into your office from time to time and there'd be a Daniel's Running Formula book all marked up on your desk. And we would go through that and talk about workouts and how things were going to progress, but who were some of your biggest influences from an actual training standpoint when it came to putting together the programs and dispensing them to your athletes?
0: Oh, that's a tough one because I I was like a potluck supper. Um, Norm Levine um, was a coach at Brandeis for years um, Mm -hmm. producing. I think he was a Hall of Famer, um, Division three national champions they, they had a long long history of great distance running. He coached me for two years. Um, John Laverty from a disciplinarian and a believing in team. Um, I got a little bit from him. Um, Fred Tressler. So uh, I think like you take a, you take what you need and you leave the, be- the you leave the rest you know uh, I always say to, to, to my athletes I still make my mother's meatballs and they're like, what are you talking about? um and i said well i might not parent exactly like her but i've taken the recipe for meatballs along with me so i think you know there's, there there are so many different resources and i'm i'm a junkie for for knowledge so um i still to this day make sure i read like two articles a week even if they're one page um because you you're constantly learning so oh my goodness i don't know if there was one real resource um the people that I experimented with when I was training in Brockton, I was writing up workouts for them. And, um, I've often said, boy, I'm glad that didn't screw you up because you know, you make mistakes along the way. Uh, so I I think it's all of the above. Most of the things I learned came from my athletes.
1: They were your guinea pigs.
0: You know, you just learn what, like you think like, okay, uh, this worked for Mario. It's going to work for Lucas. And then you realize, no, Lucas, this isn't going to work for Lucas. So you learn a lot just by doing And, and being open to know that you don't know everything. And that's okay.
1: Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at Whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about WHOOP from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. The WHOOP app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. (laughs) What are some of the biggest ways that you've evolved as a coach over the past 23 years?
0: Um, having confidence, I think, you know, getting the confidence that, you know, I could always stand up in front of a a room and look confident, but then second guess myself afterwards. Um, but, you know, I, I always coached with fear, um, I always had my athletes lining up. Um, I never lined up cocky. I never thought I was the best. I I, I just always felt as though, oh boy, um, you know, I I hope this all works out. So when it continues to work out in your favor, the law of averages has swung in my favor most of the time. Um, So I I would say number one is is probably confidence. Um, The other thing I've learned is fast people don't always make great teams. Um, I originally thought that if I recruited fast people, we would automatically have great teams. And then I brought in probably the best recruiting class I had ever brought in one year. And it was probably the next few years, the worst teams that I had had um, because the dynamic wasn't there. So then I started really honing in on my, what does it mean to be a team? Um, And how do we, React and act as a team and that wasn't their job i had left a lot of that up to them before i I created good leadership but i left the rest up to them that's when i started doing a lot more um research and activities to incorporate the sense of team how we how we have a captain how does that process happen um someone came in one time and said coach um we had a recruit down. It's like, he just doesn't, he's just not a Skyhawk. And I was like, well, what is a Skyhawk? And I kind of read a little bit about this activity where I had everybody on the team give me character traits that define who we are. What is our brand? And I was very inspired to think how many of them came up with the same things, loyalty, commitment, like all these kind of things. So um, that has changed a lot over my uh, over my career is is really, who are we and what are we trying to do as a team? Well, that's
1: culture. And for me, that was the biggest shift going from my junior year to my senior year. And I I wish I had more time to be a part of that culture because it's clearly grown since then. And a lot of the younger guys that I ran with who were on the team for another two, three years, like I was almost jealous from the outside looking in because I wanted to be a part of that for longer. And now... Especially like having gone to watch you Are guys. You the
0: foundation. You know what I mean. Um, I think those early years were more impactful than any. I mean, we we grew up together, right? And, and at Stonehill, you were new at it, I was new at it, but you have to take pride in that fact that okay, that culture was only started in two years, and look at the seeds that were planted and how they grew.
1: Well. And the fact that it's been maintained now for, I mean, makes me feel old, but two decades, um, that at least on the men's side and the women as well have had that, that culture, that sense of family, that sense of team that you Mm -hmm. were describing earlier. And it's like, that just doesn't happen by accident. And I mean, you've, you've been the common denominator, I think through it all and have helped continue to foster that during your time at Stonehill.
0: And that's probably the biggest growth that I think I had it when you were there. I ju- I, and I knew it was happening. I just didn't realize how important that was that that's just something. Um, somebody had asked me one time in an interview, if you never ran high school track and field and cross country and you had minimal experience in college, how did you create what I guess is known for one of a, a great team culture and I said, if I laid in bed at night and dreamed of what I would have loved to be a part of, that was my vision. It, and that's truly how it came to be. Like, if I was going to be on a team that was really like a cool, bonded team, it was sort of a vision. I remember going to a track meet and seeing Yukon get off their bus. And they all had their uniforms on exactly the same, they had their bags. They got off that bus and they looked like a team. They acted like a team. And I said, you know, that's that's important. That's what we're going to try to do. And I implemented in our rules that you had to have team-issued gear no matter where we went. Because that was important. It makes a sense of pride. Like we belong to something. Um, you know, no complaining starting on Thursdays, right? So if we have a meet that weekend, starting on Thursday, no negative you can think it, can't say it. So all these little things have developed over the years that have made it um, more and more, this is just who we are, and it's up to the incoming freshmen to change and adapt. And they, they tend to.
1: And I think it's those attributes that they're probably attracted to in the first place when they've come and had some time to spend around the team. And yeah, they want to get faster, and you know they want to be on that, team that goes to national championships or maybe they want to be an all American, but what they really want is to, is to be a part of something bigger than themselves.
0: And, we all crave and- community, don't we? I yeah. mean, in a pandemic, what do, we, what do we miss the most? We miss our, our little our communities. We miss our people. And I, I think it's important and it goes far, far beyond the track. It just does. It's like, look at us. We're still, we we'll, we still have all this in common. Um, and it's a, uh, That's why I say I'm in a phase four of my career out of the five phases where the relationships and um, the impact you've had on human beings um, sort of has taken a precedence over the wins and losses.
1: A couple more things before we wrap up here. You are a rare bird as far as college coaches go. There aren't a lot of women who are coaching at the collegiate level, whether it's one, two, or three, certainly not for as long as you have. And- have been able to not only have successful programs, but a very full life. You've been married to your husband, Carl, for as as long as you've known him, pretty much. You have three amazing kids who've gone on to do some incredible things, strong family bonds, a great friend circle. How have you been able to maintain all of that, number one? And then I guess the second part of that question, perhaps it should precede it. What would you say to other women who would like to get into coaching but either don't know where to start or don't think it's for them?
0: Well, you know, when people say you can be everything you want to be, I I disagree. Um, Everything takes a hit, you know. Um, I was doing a yoga class, you know, some years back, and um, I do yoga at home. I have a little yoga studio in my house, and um, something resonated with me. It said, are you a yes person? Or are you a no person? Um, if you say you're a yes person, it sounds sexier, right? This is what it says. i so like, you know, like I say yes to everything. I'm a trailblazer. If you're a no person, you're you come off maybe as um, you know afraid to do things. But what the reality is is when you say yes to something, Mario, you're automatically saying no to something else. So if I say yes to um, double sessions and I say yes to let's travel to Pennsylvania. I'm saying no to cooking dinner perhaps that night. I'm saying no to a friend who might want to go out for a beer. Um, So I've gotten good at understanding. I I have a lot of energy. Um, Some people would say probably hyper. Um, I'm I'm a little bit of a perfectionist um, and I'm competitive. So when I say yes to certain things, I have to always be mindful of who the no is going to impact. Um, and there are times that you just have to learn to say no um, because it is hard so for any woman going into this or any person going into this and raising a family um, be okay with knowing you need help that you can't do it alone Uh, most of my success comes from the fact that I surrounded myself with fantastic human beings Um, I have a fantastic husband you know we never made a lot of money He played ball. We take summers kind of off. Um, So we say no to expensive things, but we say yes to like we have some freedom. Um, I have great assistants. I have a great athletic director. Um, So surrounding yourself with good people is number one. If you're going to be in this crazy profession and always surround yourself with people that have talents that are your weaknesses. So if you don't like to recruit, you better hire a good recruiter. If you don't like to do certain things or you're not good at them, be okay to understand that you're not going to be great at everything. I did that in track and field. I used to coach a lot more events and I said, you know what, I'm going to dilute everything I do if I keep taking on too much. I have to hire people that are really good in these events. I don't care if they're not good in my event. I'm not trying to hire a mirror image of me. So I think those those things are incredibly important. And you know what? You sometimes just have to take a step back and say no, you know, no to your athletes. I mean, I, I have athletes that come in my office at all times of the day, which is great. When social media came out, I then started having athletes text me, which was great. Then I got to the point that I had no boundaries because they had access to me from the time they got up till the time they went to bed. So I put boundaries on that. My captains are allowed to text me. The team's allowed to text text me. In the event, it's something that can't be handled during the day. Um, So there are kind of boundaries you have to set up because, you know, athletes are narcissists um, just by nature of the sport you have to be. Um, So you have to learn to create, like, what is it you can handle without saying no to other things in your life that really uh, need your attention and it's a constant balance. You know, my daughters, literally, I always praised them because they shared their mom with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other kids. Um, and that wasn't easy for them. And, um, you know, I, I was always very aware that they deserve equally, if not more attention, than the team. So it's knowing your boundaries and not, not kind of beating yourself up because you can't do it all this sport is impossible. If you coach three seasons, two genders, um, it's impossible to be everything to everybody. So, you know, create a little, uh, you know, kind of army of support around you. That's the only way you can do it.
1: You mentioned earlier how you were hired by Paula Sullivan and she was one of your first mentors. That's a, I mean, if we're being honest, pretty fortuitous position to to be in, um, hired by another female athletic director, because that's even probably more rare than female coaches in right. a lot of sports. It's not your situation, but what are some of the biggest barriers facing female coaches today, whether it's at the collegiate level or elsewhere?
0: Man, <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek a lot of my... Uh best friends and mentors are male, um, true, no? we're, we're, we're wired differently. Um, you know, for example, um, if I voice an opinion at a conference, uh, meeting, or, uh, you know, I go up to an official, um, you know, with a complaint or I'm aggressive, um, you know, in, in the competitive arena, um, you know, someone had said to me, well, you don't have to be bitchy about it. I'm, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not bitchy. Um, if a guy is aggressive by nature, they're aggressive. Um, if a woman's aggressive, it's it's interpreted differently. It's just the way we were raised um, to, to view people in, in those categories. I mean, my, my early in my career it wasn't unusual at all to hear gentlemen, take a seat, you know, you'd be in a meeting ready to sit down. It's like gentlemen, take a seat. And I remember it's probably my fifth, sixth year and I was at the new England championship meeting the new England meeting. And so I said, gentlemen, take a seat. And I remember I stood up, I stayed, I stayed standing. I said, we still doing this really? Um, and and it was a chuckle, but it was nobody's doing anything wrong. They just used to be all gentlemen. Um, I, I think I was the only female for years um, in the men's meetings. In fact, in your era, Mario, they had a separate New England championship for men and a separate one for women. Every other year, I would go to the men's New England championship, and every other year, I'd go to the women's because I had to choose which one to go to. Um, and it, it just they didn't combine them yet. They were completely separate. So it, there are things... Um, you know, even the mothering thing, you know, if if, if dad's going to be gone all day, it's sort of a socially acceptable thing. If mom's going to be gone all day, I used to have people say to me all the time, oh, you're so lucky your husband doesn't mind you going on these trips. And I would say at first I wouldn't say anything because I was kind of defensive. Yeah. Then I was like, what do you mean he's lucky? I'm lucky. He's lucky. He's got a girl that's like willing to get on a bus and make money. <laughs> it's um, it's just, it's a subtle, it's a subtle underlying traditional um, impression that you have to be all this or all that. And I'm the epitome of a hybrid. Um, I'm feminine in my makeup. I'm very aggressive in my profession, Um, and I say to my women all the time when they're competing, you can be fierce and feminine all at the same time if that's what you do. You don't have to change your personality at all in this sport because what we bring as females is a nurturing side, perhaps. Um, There are athletes that have benefited a great deal from my being nurturing. And there's athletes on my team that have been on the uh, receiving end of my fierceness. Um, well, I've been on I, both, and I
1: appreciate both because they're necessary depending on on when you've got to employ each of each of those strategies. So I think you're spot on with that.
0: Right. So I think until society recognizes that we're, it's no different that if you see a very competitive male who has a really kind side. Everybody thinks that's wonderful. Well, you're going to see a lot of women that have a fear side and that's okay too. And I just think it's a matter of people becoming more comfortable with it doesn't have to be this or that. And I think that we have taken amazing strides in that direction, but boy, do we have a long way to go. <laughs>
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I agree. I do think we have a long way to go. I also agree with you that men are, by and large, the problem. And I think it's important to have these conversations because this isn't going to change overnight. But the more we continue to talk about it, the more we continue to advocate for it, um, the better chance we have of actually shifting the paradigm.
0: And hopefully someday when I walk into a hotel with my team and my assistants, The person behind the counter doesn't automatically assume my husband is running the show. He gets so embarrassed when that happens. I'll check in, I'm like, I'm here to check in my team, and they start talking to Carl. It's kind of (sighs) interesting. (laughs) Especially when you're with a bunch of guys, because I do coach the band.
1: Last fall, you were inducted into the US Track and Field and Cross Country Coaches Association Hall of Fame. What was that like for you?
0: Um, it's surreal. Um, I went through a whole array of emotions. At first, I was embarrassed. I wouldn't tell anybody. Um, I, I felt very undeserving um, because there were so many. We've never won a national championship. And there's all these coaches that have done amazing things at the national level. We get there. We've never won a national championship. I just didn't feel as though my resume was equal to some of those out there. So at first I was embarrassed. I was like, did they pick this out of a hat? Are they just looking like, I hate, I hate thinking I got the woman card. Um, You know, I I had no idea that it was coming. And then I I marinated on it a little bit. I marinated on the fact that we have 2,200 students at Stonehill College. It's $61,000 a year to go there. You have to be in the top 15%, generally speaking, to get any funding, that we only have a half a men's scholarship, that we only have one and a half women's scholarships. Um, And we're doing it, we're getting it done. You know, Um, we are literally getting that water out of that rock every year. And um, I started to say, well, you know what? Maybe U.S. TFCCCA and others are starting to recognize the majority of us in the bell curve. Um, there are teams out there that are outstanding, and then there are teams out there that are just, for whatever reason, not kind of that successful. But the majority of us are in the middle with lesser resources and normal programs and no backdoor entries. And um, so I figured that the only way that I could accept this is to, in my own head, was to say that I'm representing the majority of us who are out there just working hard every day, getting it done, teaching our kids lessons. And somebody noticed So if they notice that most of us are just out there getting it done, and I'm going to represent that, then okay, I'll get up and accept that award. (laughs) But that was truly the only way that I could uh, wrap my hand around it.
1: I think that's great. I think that's the majority out there whether it's division two collegiately three or one at the high school level Mm -hmm. um there are just a lot of coaches programs and athletes who are getting it done who don't have the big resources we even see that at the professional level who you know because they don't have that they don't get recognized um but Mm -hmm. they're doing amazing things and i mean you know again i'm not i can't be objective because i was A part of it, but to see what you've done at Stonehill College and take a program that was literally on the brink of extinction um, and resurrect it. And within, I mean, it was a handful of years before the women were at nationals from when you took over. And then the men followed a couple of years later. And that's been going strong ever since. And you've built a team, a program In a culture that, yeah, hasn't won a national title, but you don't have a big budget. You don't have a huge staff. You don't have a ton of scholarships, but your squads have gotten it done. Um, And I mean, again, I ran for you and you've had a huge impact on my life. So from my vantage point, I thought it was long overdue, but I think I'm with you. Like just that the satisfaction is like, hey, here's someone who's recognized because they've been putting in the work and not just because they've got a bunch of accolades next to his or her
0: name. It's true. It's true. There's so many people in, in track and field and cross country are a lot of times, not the most recognized sports to begin with. So to be recognized in a sport, that's not always as recognized as it should be. And to sort of represent the majority of people that are out there, um, for the love of the sport, I was honored to represent them.
1: Last question. And it's a completely selfish one and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but your favorite memory of me from my time at Stonehill College.
0: Oh boy. Um, your, your, Your face at the end of Spectacular races um, was something I'll always remember. You were an animal. I, I think you had that trait where you knew you were better than other people in your heart, and you were willing to do whatever it took. But that cross country race where you were hammering down—is it Nate? Yeah, yeah. Rachel. I would, I would say, I would say that was right up there along with the all American performance, but. I don't know if there's just one mile, that mile you ran <laughs> to come in as a 435, 436 miler. And to pop that mile you ran um, for was it 407, 409?
1: I wish it was 407, 4097, yeah
0: 4097. So I remember the, that was another one that I was like whoa, this guy, like, with strength comes speed. So I would say those three, um, as a team, I would say it was the New Englands before. I don't know. I, I hold so many memories from early on, um, many more than I do from the current phase I'm in, simply because it was all so surreal because we were, we were so bad. And then we just started to kind of punch our way out of that bag. So, I probably have more vivid memories of you than I do others, simply because it was happening. It was happening, and you were the start of it.
1: Well, I I appreciate that. And it's interesting to hear you say that, because a lot of my same memories are tied to the same events. I mean, for me, the number one memory of just my time at Stonehill was crossing the line behind Nate um, at that regional championship in two thousand. One, I mean, selfishly being pissed that I couldn't catch him.
0: Oh, um, it was so exciting because you would have caught him if you had more time. Well, and,
1: and so, so this is my number one Karen Bowen memory,
0: <laughs> is
1: you telling me, you know, not immediately afterward, maybe it was after the cool down or on the bus ride back, you're like, well, Mario... He had just ran out of real estate, um, and, I mean that's a, that's a common Coach Bowenism, but it was very apt in in that situation because I do believe if the line were another ten meters back, I probably I probably would have caught him. But the other part too with the mile, I mean, as, as you just described, I I did come in as a four thirty six miler out of high school. And my freshman year, I improved a lot under your guidance. And I think I ran 402 or something like that for 1500 meters. Maybe it wasn't quite that fast, but I had a meeting with you. I, it was like after the season, it was like a debrief of some sort. And and you told me that I could break 410 for the mile. And I wasn't even close at the time. I don't know if you remember that, but it stuck with me and I, I had it in a notebook um, and you told me that I could break four ten for the mile, and I thought you were like high as a kite or something. I was like, she's out of her mind. Like, there's just no way that I'm going to run four o anything for the mile because it's. Not, I mean, it's not even in the same stratosphere as, as four thirty six. But um, what stuck out to me about that is just the amount of belief that you had in me um, very early on when I even didn't have it in myself, and then to see it kind of come into fruition has, has, you know, I'll, I'll, I still look back at that, you know, now almost 20 years later. And uh, it just like, means a lot to me, um, to, to be like, wow, there's someone who like, you know, really believed in me, didn't give up on me. And, and I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I ran for the mile, but I think it extended far beyond just the, you know, just the performance and, and I'll forever be grateful for that.
0: And I've used your experience in your journey at Stonehill as a motivator to so many others that I've sat in my office and spoken with, um, I kept, you know, kind of running tallies of what people did on performance sheets and I would show them what they ran the first time, you know, even Lucas, I, I showed a, a kid this season. I was like, look at what Lucas ran his freshman year and look at what he did his senior year. So I've, I've had a whole, I still have your, um, your running journal, your logs from the year you were an all American. Um, and probably once every four years, cause I try to tap into each class. I make a copy of it. Um, certain pages of it, um, with some of your comments and I give it to my team <laughs> as they're training. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. A lot of little tricks of the trade. Cause like, well, you want to humanize it, you know, yep. you want to personalize sure. it. And, um, So they know all you guys that came from the past, but I also want them to know where you guys started from, same as you are interested today in learning where I started from. Yeah,
1: But I mean, you know, and and this is about you. It's not about me, but I'm just – I'm one of many. Um, You did the same with – I mean, I can't even begin to name all of them over the past several years. Sean McEwen comes in as a 4:32 miler in high school, leaves as a cross country all American. You even get someone in as talented as Keith Gill, who I think broke 4:20 in high school and left Stonehill as like NCAA Division two athlete of the year, running like 4:04. Christina Sarametis, who like I don't even know if she broke 20 minutes for 5K in high school, and then she's an all American on the track by the time that she graduates. Um, same Crazy. with Dana <laughs> or Diana Shavakos. Um, it's just like. i'm really proud um just to be a a part of that you know tradition and and i know the impact that you've had on my life has extended to so many others and on behalf of all of those people i'd like to just say thank you one more time
0: thank you for all of you to come past my way you are my biggest gift
1: Well, thank you for this conversation. It's a gift to me. I think it's going to be a gift to so many people who listen to it, whether they went to Stonehill College or were aware of Stonehill College or not, because I think there are a lot of parts of of just your personal story, but also just your philosophy as a coach that people can take away and apply to their own lives. So thank you again for making the time and coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast.
0: Thanks, Mario. Continue doing what you do.
1: All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on Tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at Tracksmith Running, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. WHOOP is offering 15% off with the code MARIO, that's my name, when you check out. So go to WHOOP, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter the code MARIO, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with WHOOP. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout. John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.